Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Jeff Wilson is the Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, and Founder of Wilson Asset Management, one of Australia's best-known asset management businesses, representing over 130,000 individual shareholders. Jeff recently sat down with me to talk through his story, the formation of Wilson Asset Management, to share his best and most challenging investments over his career, to talk about the LIC versus ETF versus trust and managed fund structures, and so much more. If you're here to listen to Jeff's take on the franking credits debate, you can jump ahead to around about 38 minutes into the conversation. However, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy all of the conversation and I think it sets the scene nicely for understanding where Jeff comes from in his investment philosophy and perspectives and also the strategy that he has pursued both in terms of his business and in his personal life over many decades. I hope you enjoyed this conversation on the Australian Investors Podcast featuring Jeff Wilson. Jeff, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. Hey, hey good to be here, Owen, and, and please excuse my surroundings. I'm in a hotel room. I've just arrived in Hobart. I'm down for the you know, Sown Hearts and Minds Investment Conference, which is on in a couple of days' time. So, Well, it, uh, you look very sharp in your, in your suit, mate. I, uh, I must admit I'm underdressed as per usual, um, but no, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to talk about your journey. We're going to talk about the business. We're going to talk about franking credits. We're going to talk about, um, I guess, even just licks and the structure and the, of the industry, investment outcomes and all that sort of stuff. Um, but maybe just to kick, kick things off, I'll start with a few uh, quick fire questions and icebreakers, if you like. And this first question, I, I have no idea where this is going to go. So I am genuinely curious, who is the investor that has taught you the most? Ooh, uh, probably, uh, probably the person who would have been also an investor and, and probably a bit of an entrepreneur was Sir, Sir Ian Potter. Now that set up Potter Partners, and mm -hmm. I did work for Potter Partners at one stage. But in terms of how he's developed, you know, various businesses, and you know, in, in his heyday, uh, he was a you know, a, a very dynamic. Um, you, know, you probably entrepreneur in the in the fund sorry in in the in i suppose investment space mm -hmm. so, okay well, in terms of in terms of investing you know, the passion would have come from my father you know, even though you know, he's, he was a doctor but he loved investing and that was you know, mm -hmm. a bit from his father um and then probably my first two bosses at Scottish Amicable 1980 I you know, started at you know, Scottish Amicable, young, 21, 22-year-old, didn't, didn't, didn't know very much about the market or investing or the logic behind it. And my then boss, Chris Walker and Don Brinkworth, they, they really gave me you know, a lot of the passion about you know, going out, seeing companies, doing the research, um, you know, company visits, you know, picking up information, you know, just how important that was, looking at medium and small size uh, companies. And they were focused on industrial companies. And right. that's, that's sort of an area that I've... I'm yeah, quite passionate about. Yeah, it's it's always fascinating to hear that. I should ask that question as what was your first job out of uni or school? Because it's often that have the most profound.
profound impact. But we'll get to your story in just a, a minute and the, the origin story of, of Wilson. But um, this this next investment could be, a you could have a financial answer for this. You could have um, maybe some, something to do with your personal life, whatever. Uh, what's been your best investment? Yeah, best investment, probably um, yeah, marrying my wife. <laughs> Good answer. In terms of, well, in, in terms of uh, her mentoring or uh, advice or guidance, um, uh, giving me sort of my daughter, uh, uh, you mm. know, so, or our daughter, which is yeah, exceptional. The the in, in terms of from a financial perspective, the probably um, investing or I became a stockbroker, um, and yeah, you know, sorry, I, I was a stockbroker, and I actually got a license. Yeah, you know, became a member of the stock exchange. And when I became a member of the Stock Exchange, they'd, they'd previously tried to demutualize it and pay everyone back the $25,000 they put in. And mm -hmm. I sort of liked the idea of you know, being a part owner of that business. And you know, so I um, you know, became a, a member and then you know, paid my $25,000 and ended up getting, when it demutualized, 166,000 166, ASX shares, which... <laughs> no, I, I knew this question was coming, so I, I, I did the calculations worth sort of $11.2 million now. Now, wow. I, unfortunately, unfortunately, the 25000 uh, unfortunately, I sold quite a while ago. So, <laughs> uh, but it, 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 was, it was a very good investment. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. I Wow, okay, I didn't expect you to say that. That's, I mean, both of those answers are superb and um, I can appreciate why you said both of them. Um, the final one, and maybe this relates to that second answer there, Jeff, is um, what's been your hardest investment lesson learned? Well, I, I mean, losing losing money is incredibly painful and, and you know, any mm. company that you, you, know, you own, you, know, you buy shares in and it goes down, you, know, you feel that pain. It, it's probably, um, I, I remember... Yeah, when I was you know set up Wilson Asset Management twenty five years ago, I'm managing money on behalf of mm. you know, shareholders, a lot of shareholders, and then um, I think probably a, a couple of years in, one of the companies we owned, and you know say a portfolio of seventy or eighty companies, but one of them went under, and that is incredibly painful. Mm. Yeah, you know, when you question yourself, um, yeah, you know, I suppose yeah, another big frustration, and this wasn't in this necessarily in this company, but it's when you go and meet management um, and sort of these are disappointments is, and when they lie to you. Um, mm -hmm. and you only find that out in, in retrospect. And, and it's only like it's like natural you know, you know, standard deviation. You know, there's there's you know, some people at, at five times, you know, at, at either end of the bell curve, um, you know, say some exceptionally good people and some exceptionally bad people in, in any industry. So mm -hmm. that, that's, both, that, that's both pain. That, that's both areas of pain. Well, I guess what, you've been doing it long enough, right? I'm sure, you know, we say risk is part and parcel investing, right? So you're bound mm. to have some some war stories over the years. And, um, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, mm. I, I realise coming into this conversation, I've followed Wilson for so many years. I think I can remember seeing a photo of you in the AFR back when I was just starting investing and I started to read everything from there. But I, I still don't know exactly how the business came into formation what was what's the origin story there jeff ha, ha, why and how and when i have mm. so many questions so so i mean we, we've got, got to go back about 25 odd years you know, a little bit before that i was trying to work out what am i going to do with my life um yeah i i, I would i i started off in the funds management area and then i got into, into broking as an analyst um mm. and then on you know, worked overseas uh then also was back in australia sort of at a senior level, you know, running institutional sales. And sort of the question, uh, you know, there was, I had a client, you know, Tim Hughes, he, he, he managed money for Reg Grundy, RG Capital. Um, he had a big pool of capital and he said, look, Jeff, at lunch he was saying, what do you really want to do? And mm. I said, I'd probably like to, you know, manage some money. And sort of around that time, I got, I'm you know, 64 now. You know, getting close to 65 and this was you know you know when I was 39 40 um, you know, I had a, a young daughter who was four years of age and you know going to work at sort of 6 37 in the morning um, and just thought there's something wrong with this yeah you know, I, I should be able to have breakfast with my wife and daughter and 
Mm. Uh, so, you know, so that sort of led me to think, well, how else can I, you know, you know what can I do um, that gives me stimulation that's exciting, um, you know, that I'm passionate about? Uh, and talking to, you know, Tim about it, he, yeah, he, he, we, he's, I sort of said, like, what I was doing was the fur line mousetrap. <laughs> now, I was making a lot of money, but it was killing me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, what do you really like doing? And I said, look, I'd love to manage some money. So he said, look, uh, yeah, we're happy to give you some money to manage. Um, and that was sort of the start of the, the start of the business. And then I put in all the money I had, which was half a million dollars, <laughs> and, and into a fund, and, and they matched me. And they, they ended up putting some more money in um, over the next sort of six months. And really the whole idea was to be as a, be perceived as an institution. Um, because as an individual investor, I could have sat at home and managed the money by myself. You just don't get those accesses, you know, mm. access to company, access to information, you know, a lot of the free money, you know, with, you know, um, IPOs, placements, blocks of stock at a discount. You know, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll call myself a, an institution. And, um, you know, that, that was sort of the start of Wilson Asset Management. It started with you know, a million dollars of assets, you know, back on the 1st of January, 98. So this was the inception of well, WAM Capital, is that correct? No, or was... No, well, it was started off with um, a, a trust structure and it's, okay. and it's Wilson Asset Management Equity Fund. And really, it was... So you really had to prove that even though I managed money back in the early 80s, you know, I was, I was sort of a, a right. trainee or um, in funds management, I hadn't managed money publicly before. So it was really the the track record of that over 18 months. Um, yeah, 18 months into it, then we went and floated WAM Capital, which is you know, the listed investment company. So we still have the Wilson Asset Management Equity Trust. Yeah, we really haven't marketed it for probably 20 two or 23 years. Right. Um, yeah, we, we managed some money in there pro bono. Yeah, we managed some money for the, uh, you know, future gen uh, entities and we uh, managed some money pro bono for the Australian Olympic Committee as well. Hmm. Um, so, and we've got, a, I think we've got about another 20 original uh, you know, investors that are in there. So why, one of the questions that um, I got coming through from social media, Jeff, and, um, a lot of the things that I think about too is um, the difference obviously between trust structures, managed fund structures and listed investment companies. Mm. Why, why did you decide to go with WAM Capital as a yeah. listed investment company? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and pretty much the bulk of our, the money we manage, the $5 billion on behalf of you know, 130-odd thousand shareholders, the bulk of that is in the listed investment company structure. Uh, and um, even though you know, our, our initial fund wasn't that structure, and, and the plan, yeah, you know, we will have other funds that won't have that structure. Will be more of a trust structure. Mm. One of the things um, I, I loved about the listed investment company structure is I saw a bit of research. This was Morgan Stanley, probably thirty-five years ago. You, mm. you it was US research, and it showed how the listed investment company structure, or over there, it's called the closed-end. Fund structure. It's a closed-end pool of capital, so whatever money's in there sort of stays in there. So the investment, it, the investment manager, can buy or sell shares, never worrying about people you know, taking money out or putting more money in. Um, and it showed that over a fifty-year period, it really outperformed an open-ended pool of, of capital. That's sort of the trust or the managed fund structure. Mm. By two to two and a half percent per annum. Now that that was phenomenal outperformance, mm. and I, I thought, geez, so we can create a listed investment company that can trade on the stock market. Uh, yeah, the structure is gives it real advantages where you can you're just managing that money and you can take a medium long term view, and you're never a forced buyer at the top of the market or a forced seller at the bottom of the market. And one of the problems with the market is, I think the average investor gets about half the market return because they tend to be a buyer at the top of the market, mm. and a seller at the bottom of the market. So, you know, money's, you know, during the GFC, all the money's, everyone wants cash, so all the money's flowing out of those managed funds. And that's when, you know, no, like they might have, 
they can buy and sell the shares in the listed investment companies, but you're not, as a manager, you're not losing any money. So it gives you a real competitive advantage. And then the other thing, which people say is a weakness for listed investment companies, to me, I think it's 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 you know, like the holy grail. One of the big positives for listed investment companies is you can have a dollar of assets and it can trade at a dollar ten, or mm. it can trade at ninety cents. So if you do a bit more, if you do a bit of research, then you can get some. You know, you can get a yeah you know, a hundred dollars of exposure to the market. And you can only pay eighty dollars for it or ninety dollars for it. So um, now, so to me, it was just it was nearly too good to be true. You can have a structure that gives you some real advantages. Um, plus, you can buy that below what the value of the assets are, are worth. So that, that's pretty much why you know, we went in that direction. And, and the, the, initially, the idea was to have the trust for our wholesale investors and have the listed investment company for our retail investors. But right. then, you know, then, then as it grew, we just continued to focus on growing the listed investment companies and and in terms of you know i mean we will you know we will add trusts along the way yeah you know, when it makes sense i think yeah i mean there's did you would you be surprised if i told you that the the median um holding period of a of a manage a fund manager is about 7.4 months uh the in terms of how long they own shares yeah, yeah. Would, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at all. The um, and and of course it'll be, yeah. The the um, well, in theory, they're trying to they're, they're trying to make money. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they're trying to outperform everyone else. Yeah, you know, so there's obviously a decent whack, a decent amount of performance pressure. Uh, and in terms of depends on your strategy. So like with Wham Capital, our largest listed investment company, half of the the money in that is trading, and and we would turn over the portfolio, um, you know, four times a year. That part, <laughs> and the other half of the portfolio is sort of undervalued growth companies, and we are going to only buy them when we can see a catalyst mm. that's going to change the valuation. And and like the holding period there can be years, you know, sometimes mm. if they continue to continue to deliver. Yeah, I think that's. And the reason why I mentioned that is I think that the the open ended structure of um, managed funds, and we'll talk about ETFs in just a second. That is a, I, I see that from the outside, not someone who manages money as a significant limitation if you do have a long term focus because you, you know, you kind of, you're trying to massage the portfolio to try and get it right for the investors. And we measure, we, we expect long term returns, but we measure month, monthly yeah. returns. And it is crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like for me, um, what you're saying is 100% correct. It's, it's mm. pretty crazy. How about then, Jeff? Obviously, uh, ETFs uh, use that trust structure open-ended. Hmm. Um, how, how have you, I guess, seen the rise of ETFs playing or impacting listed investment companies? And I guess, how do you yeah. see that going forward? Yeah, I actually see it very positive for the listed investment companies. Okay. The, uh, uh, first of all, you've got to remember the people that manage listed investment companies, you know, particularly like the Affix and the Argos, they've been around for you know, close to 100 years. And and the first listed investment company in the UK, I think it was 1868, foreign and colonial. So, you know, the, the whole structure's been around for a long time. And and, and, it, um, and it, yeah, it will, it will, or it'll stay and it'll continue to you know, grow at it, 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 its rate. The index funds, you know, go back 10, 20 years ago, you know, index funds were the, the rage, you know, and then, yeah, you know, now it's ETFs, and like I understand, the ETF has has a you know, has a position in the market, just like listed investment companies. If you want exposure to an index, yeah, you know, or to a group of companies, and you want to, um, you know, get in at the value of the assets and get out at the value of the assets, then an ETF's fantastic, a fantastic way of getting you know, cheap exposure. Now, on the listed investment companies, like in Australia. You know, say Afic and Argo, the two biggest, like their their um, you know, the, their management fees are probably probably well and truly less than a number of the majority of ETFs. So, you're getting an active manager cheaper than ETF. The the positive and the negative you've got there is they can trade at premiums and they can trade at discounts. And like at the moment, the three largest 
uh, LICs, uh, Australian LICs, is uh, AFIC, Argo and WAM Capital. And they're all trading at you know, 10% plus premiums. You know, so mm. you wouldn't want to buy them at the moment. You're more likely to be a seller at the moment and you buy them when they're at a discount. Um, so but ETFs have a position. And I actually think it's, it's, it's good actually for the listed investment company space. Um, because if you want to, you know, it, it's nearly the sort of, you know, maybe ETFs are sort of, um, you know, grade one in terms of learning <laughs> investing. Uh, in, in my day, you'd buy a share and like, but you, you're taking enormous amount of risk, you know, buying a share because you're putting all your assets in, you know, one company. There's no diversification there. An ETF, at least, it gives you exposure to the market, you know, very diverse. And then if you want, you know, then I think if you want to progress, you know, say from you know, junior to senior school, then you start doing research on listed investment companies and work out why they trade at premiums and discounts. And you know, so you're getting exposure to the market at a good price. And then you can get sort of a, a leverage you know, position. If you're buying at a discount, the market goes up and then it goes, the discount goes from you know, where it was to trade at pre, premium or even at NTA. So to me, it's by doing a bit more research and then, you know, mm. then the next you know, phase would be buying individual stocks. Yeah, if you want to go that, you know, that logic. Mm. Oh, yeah, I, I tend to follow a similar train of thought. And we see that in our community. A lot of our newer investors start with ETFs, makes a lot of sense, buy the basket and then explore from there. Um, there is something which I want to talk to briefly and we've got a lot to talk about. So I just want to touch on these quickly because there was an email thread and I think it's a shout out to Mark Tobin, um, who's, who's now uh, got Coffee Microcaps. Uh, he put me on an email chain many years ago when I was at The Motley Fool when the, um, the future gen products were launching. Mm. Um, and I thought it's worthwhile just paying a bit of time just to, to talk to you about why you decided to, to launch these products, what they are, and, mm. yeah, why, I guess why you felt the need to do them. Yeah, and, and hey, good old Mark. The uh, <laughs> disclose, you know, we, you disclosed interest at the start. Mark did work with us. So, yep. uh, uh, I mean, yeah, so that, that's the disclosure of that interest. The um, well, well, I suppose when I set up Wilson Asset Management, the whole idea was to have a pool of capital and to effectively make a difference for those people that had the money in that pool of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was really to make a difference. And as the business has grown, we can sort of make a difference and give back to you know the society we operate in and the community we operate in. And oh, probably when was it seven, eight, nine years ago? I was in the UK. And I saw a gentleman who set up, um, it was called the Battle Against Cancer Investment Trust, Tom Henderson. And he's, I think he's the great grandson of, of the gentleman who set up Henderson Asset Management, or he's in the line there somewhere. He, he was a previous hedge fund um, manager. And that was, the structure was just a fantastic structure where he'd got a whole lot of fund managers and said, look, manage the money in your main funds for free. And then allow, um, you know, because you're managing it for free, then I'll, you know, direct, say, 1% of the assets to his focus was the Institute of Cancer Research and then about another 16-odd charities. Uh, And I just thought, what a fantastic structure. You know, so I came back to Australia and it just took a little bit of time, you know, thinking I'd love to do it in Australia. And we're able to create the two future generation um, investment companies, and they're, you know, we've got the smartest boutique fund managers there. Um, you know, in FGX is the Australian uh, listed investment company. Uh, sorry, it, it invests in Australian equities, uh, and FGG invests in um, in global equities. And and we've got the smartest fund managers, you know, managing the Australian boutique guys, managing the Australian money and then the global guys managing the global money. So it's just, to me, take my hat off to the, all the fund managers. You know, they're, they're doing this pro bono. Um, and, and they like it because it's an opportunity for them to give back. Mm. So and, and the great thing is, you know, so 10 to $11 million a year goes to support our know, children at risk in Australia and youth mental health in Australia. So, yeah, from, from those two entities. And I think we've given so far about, you know, $65 million. So... It is 
uh, it's it's been great. And and in terms of personally, like it does, I remember at our twenty, I think it was uh, our twenty year anniversary. You know, mm. I, I was giving a speech, and um, you know, I was saying that it actually does give me a lot of. Uh, I, I was one of six kids, and so I was the third child. You know, where does the first third child sit? <laughs> you know, always try to. Uh, Sort of get mum and dad's approval, probably, but uh, I, I did, did take a lot of solace from being able to set up those entities and uh, and and what it can give back to mm. to uh, Australia. I just think, yeah, I mean, I mean, there are plenty of people in your circumstance, Jeff, that wouldn't have done it. So um, that's why I wanted to call it out because even at the time, I thought it was a fantastic uh, initiative and. Yeah, credit to you. you got, we just had a look. We're recording this on video and we just had a look at the website there and could see some of the names that you brought together to to do that. Um, I think that's, yeah, a credit to you for, for giving that a crack and, and doing what you've done. And I think when I talk, I, I often talk to some investors and people who know me personally and they say, well, when I pass away, I want to create like a charitable trust or something like this where it can continually give money to charities or community groups and that sort of stuff. And to be able to do that in a sustainable way is actually very difficult, whereas mm. this seems to be the, the happiest yeah. medium between everything. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a great initiative and hopefully uh, we see more of it. Yeah, and, and, and there has been more. You know, like there's, you know, mm. there's the uh, HM1, Hearts and Minds. You know, they've created one, so now you know, they're giving away nearly as much as we do on an annual basis. Um, you know, so there's – like, and then there's room for more. Like if, if – Anyone wants to me? There's room for a property one. <laughs> I'm happy to help someone. Yeah, I don't want to drive it. We've got the global one and the Australian one. But yeah, you could, there's room for a fixed interest equivalent or a property one. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. Uh, speaking of this, was just a natural segue to the the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which um, which is the way you think about intergenerational wealth transfer and and giving, but not also the financial aspect of giving, but also how you prepare whether it's family and whether you've seen this with your shareholders or your team, how people can prepare their children or their, you know, their nieces and nephews, their grandchildren um, to be, you know, I guess worthy with the money, but also just even learn about investing. I think that's just a really important part of it, the education. So how have you approached that challenge? Because a lot of families find that very difficult. And, and it is difficult. I think it has to be via conversations. Um, and I, I know, I suppose I was a, um, well, I, I know my situation was more curiosity. You know, mm. I, I saw my father at night after he'd come home from work and have dinner, sit down and read the paper and look down and, you know, at the list of a whole lot of numbers on a page. And I remember asking him, what are all those numbers? And he said, that's the stock market. And I thought, that's, that's a weird concept. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked down and there was, you know, there was a company trading at one cent, and I thought, oh, I could afford that. Uh, it, it, yeah, it ended up going under. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was Cox Brothers. It was a Melbourne retailer. But anyway, um, the no, I think it has to be via conversation. Uh, and also, I'm a big believer. Yeah, you asked me. Yeah, you know, one of the early questions was sort of who, um, you know, was in, instrumental in sort of shaping what my view was from an investment perspective. Now, I've always been very curious, um, yeah, and the when when there's an opportunity presents itself to me, try to talk to people, you know, that have have succeeded and have experience. Um, yeah, not not I, I don't see it necessarily as you know, having a mentor. Yeah, that's great. I know it's very modern to talk about that. Um, I, I don't think I ever had a mentor, but there's people that I respected and looked up to and. Uh, try to understand why they did various things. And I remember, you know, a long time ago, um, you know, David Clark, who was the chairman of Macquarie Bank, very successful you know, mm. si since the early days of Hill Samuel. Uh, I was fortunate enough to you know, meet him a, a few times. And then I said, look, you know, let's have lunch. And we talked about that. And about 30-odd you know, years ago, again, there was you know, this young lawyer that, that had done quite a bit, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, I remember, Mm -hmm. Now, when he had a listed company the, and when I was broken, we were sort of associated with that a little bit. And so I said, look, Malcolm, can we have lunch just to understand how 
his mind ticks. And then when I became a member of the Stock Exchange, uh, then I rang up Morris Newman, who was then chairman, and you know, he probably thought, who is this guy? You know, out of the blue, I said, look, I've just become a member. I'd like, yeah, you know, he's chairman of the ASX. I'd like to have lunch with you. And to me, it's just trying to understand, you know, understand their journeys. Um, I, I know from a from a work perspective at Wilson Asset Management, we try to get the you know, smart people involved, um, you know, with the organisation to, you know, give people, a, you know, exposures and experiences. You know, we've got someone at the moment you know, who's, First class, Dr. Gemma King. You know, she did a lot of work with the um, defence forces uh, um, mm. in terms of resilience, uh, things like that. Um, yeah, old uh, yeah, Ben Crow, who um, yeah was Aspar uh, was Aspardi's coach, um, mm. and and I think did the Richmond football team again. Just saw I just saw a write up in the Fin Review of both those and. You know, Met through in the pot at work, and we got in contact with them, and they came in and done some work with us. And yeah, Adam Goods, you know, we, we're supportive of the Go Foundation, and you know, to me, Adam's got you know, incredible wisdom. And um, yeah, to me, it's just trying to get more as many exposures to people, and, and trying to find ways to get those exposures. Um, mm. Yeah, mm. That's, yeah. There's, there's no, I don't think there's any, you know necessarily secret formula in terms of investing and what to do with money it's trying to have as many of the conversations and you know some people are interested in it and passionate about it and some aren't and um yeah you know, you know, if there's yeah. assets there and they aren't and well they can keep them in cash but if they want to take some risk then they've got to work out you know do they do it themselves or do they give it to someone else to try to help them i think one of the reasons that our podcasts have been so successful jeff is because Sometimes in our culture, when it comes to learning about money and investing, it's almost a taboo subject. You know, you don't talk about how much you earn, how much money you have, all these types of things. Mm. Um, and to the point, like your point earlier on, where you talked about, you know, the demutualization and the ASX shares and all that, a lot of people mm. don't talk about the numbers because for mm. one reason or another, they just, we're, we're almost, it's ingrained in our culture not to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. And I find that that's a really big problem not just because we should be talking about, but because it's also very important. So, you know, yeah. it's not like we're talking about fast cars or something like that. We're talking about money. And yes. I find that the families that have conversations around the dinner, dinner table about money, yes. the, the, the children are oftentimes much more inclined to embrace the idea of investing and feel it's a positive thing rather than a, a thing to be feared, if that makes yes. sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that, that's a very fair point. And that's, uh, it is you know, one of the, sort of frustrations with our schooling system is you know, probably perhaps one of the most important things is you know, like um, you know, your um, financial well-being or your, um, you know, your health, um, but we're not really taught <laughs> much about either is <laughs> at school. Yeah, I, yes. can I can tell you I've never yeah. used that much trigonometry since I left uh, my specialist <laughs> maths class. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, it's great for me because in our business – we have 110,000 people that listen to the podcast, right, Jeff? So for me, it's um, it's great because people that don't feel they have the confidence to go and talk about investing or money can come and listen to mm -hmm. the podcast and hear conversations like this. But yeah. uh, how about you mentioned your, you mentioned your team there. Mm -hmm. And since I've been following the Wilson story, you've built out that team. You've got some incredible people in the business. Mm -hmm. Is there is there a the way you think about bringing people into the team, is there like set structure or things that you have done, like strategies that you have honed over the years to, I guess, increase the chance of success? Because whether you're a, a big company, a small company, a corporate, this is the challenge, not just now because there's low unemployment, but mm. in general, you know, this is the number one frustration. I think the first thing you need is to have a values match with the individual. Okay. And so what we do is, you know, we, we've been doing this for probably, you know, 20 odd years. Um, you know, luckily, you know, so 20 years ago, there was a gentleman, Alex Verheer, who did a lot of work with us on, on our, our own values and, and why do we exist and what, you know, what drives us and why are we passionate about what we're trying to do. Mm. And it's really, you know, there, and then, then you realise, and, and we've got a, you know, if you come for an interview with us, um, yeah, then you'll you'll be asked to 
out of like 150 words, you know, pick, um, you know, pick 10 of your personal values, 10 of your, um, you know, your, 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 your current work values and 10 of your desired work values. And then um, we've got, you know, we've, all, we've done it as an organisation so we not, know what our values are. And then initially it's working out whether your values and our values match. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people are at various stages. You know, the, the values sort of triangle that we look at or um, uh, is, is very similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know? uh, but, but it, and it goes from you know, the very basic but then to the, very, you know, to the most advanced. Um, and so you, to me, values is incredibly important. And then, from my perspective, it's the you know sort of the quality of the of the individual, and mm. you need to try to make an assessment in an interview or you know, in, a, in a group of interviews about the quality of the individual. Because, um, well, I, I suppose in, in if we go back to the start of Wilson Asset Management, we were talking about before it was myself, and there was yeah you know, I, I thought I'd just be a, a sole operator, mm. you know, that, you know, running a small pool of capital, and then. About four months in, uh, another thing I wanted to do was write a book. Um, you know, I, had, I had my sort of write a book, go on a couple of boards, have a little pool of capital to manage. Um, and in terms of writing the book, I was talking to Matthew Kidman, who was then at the Sydney Mo- business editor at Sydney Morning Herald, and said to Matthew, hey, look, let's do you want to ghost write a book or we write it together? He said, let's write it together. So I was working with him and then he said, hey, look, he, he's had enough of, being a journalist, he wanted to get into the investment game. So um, you know, I sort of told him a few people to speak to. Then when he was close to getting a job, I thought, oh, geez, I'm writing a book with him. I want him to come and work with him. <laughs> so, uh, but, but in terms of with Matthew, uh, uh, even though he hadn't invested before uh, um, yeah, professionally, like he was a good, high-quality individual. And, um, you know, to me, if... It's, it's probably a little bit like, yeah, you know, maybe it's not like in, you know, investing or or you know, buying horses. Yeah, you know, it's it, yeah, you know, with horses, it's the bloodlines they look at. But to, mm. to me, yeah, you know, from my perspective, it's the quality. If you can, if you've got a high quality individual, yeah, you know, they mightn't have the skill set at that point in time, but they they if they're passionate about what they do, yeah, then they will get that skill set and skill set. And and probably the third thing is yeah, you know, it's values. It's quality of the individual, and the third thing is passion. Mm. You know, they really need to have a passion about mm. investing. Like you said, for you it was curiosity. Um, what one of the the fir- very first person who came on this series many years ago said, and is Wayne Peters from the former mm-hmm. fund Peters McGregor. He said, he said the thing that keeps you getting back up on the horse is uh, curiosity. It's just being curious about the world. And yeah. yeah, I think that rings true with all of the great investors who I've spoken to on the show. Well, that's, Maybe, that's, that's the great sorry. thing about investing. That's the great thing about investing, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's so dynamic. And yeah, and yeah, I mean, you are. You've got to be passionate, and and because it changes so much, you've got to be curious. And and because it's so humbling, yeah. You know, like you think you think you've worked it out, and bang, yeah, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> For a six. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, you know, that's. I guess that's the thing to 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 finish first. You first got to finish, and getting to that finish line is quite difficult a lot of the time because we do. You know, we follow that humility curve. We tend to think we've got it, and then all of a sudden, the market or some extraneous variable comes out of nowhere, and we're we're, we're humbled yet again. Definitely. Uh, one of the things that I, I really wanted to talk to you about. And I know that you're keen to talk about as well is basically what's transpired with the the franking credit system and in particular, like otherwise known as imputation. And maybe just to set the scene, Jeff, can you can you give us kind of like the 101 on franking credits? Like everyone, I assume everyone listening to this knows, but just in case, I figure we may as well catch them up. And maybe what we can do as part of that framing is what was proposed at the last election versus now. Hmm. And, and why don't we go all the way back? Because you know, Paul yeah, sure. and Bob Hawke brought in a system. Uh, and, and what they, in the old days, is a company would make money. Uh, it would, you know, say, say a company would earn $100 million. It would pay tax 
say, $30 million as the corporate you know, tax rate for large <laughs> companies at the moment. So it would pay $30 million tax and it would have $70 million left. Uh, then say if it paid out, yeah, it paid out $35 million of that $70 million and kept the other $35 million and invested in the business. Well, that $35 million it paid out as a dividend, in the old days, you'd get that in your pocket and then you'd pay your amount of tax. Like if you're on a 30% tax rate, then you lose another 30%. Or if you're on a 48% tax rate, you lose another nearly half of that money. Mm-hmm. But what Keating said is like that's being double taxed. So he said, I'll, I'll remove the double taxation. And they called it, uh, in Australia, they called it dividend imputation. They did a similar thing in the UK back in 1977. I just can't remember. The acronym was ACT. Um, it was something corporate tax. Um, mm-hmm. could have been associated corporate tax or something like that. Um, now, the you know, so that, that, that was the idea and that was the principle. And, and, so, and what it did, um, so, and, and with companies, when companies, um, you know, when companies look to expand, you know, they've got a choice. They can either borrow money, which and the interest is tax deductible, or they can raise equity. Uh, and what the dividend imputation system did, first of all, with Australian companies, it encouraged Australian companies to invest in Australia, to employ Australians, you know, to pay tax in Australia and pay fully frank dividends to the shareholders in Australia because it's a, that supported their share prices and actually made equity cheaper than debt. So Australian companies don't have anywhere near as much debt as uh, European or US or, or other global companies. And that's why we did so well during the GFC. And that's why we'll do, like, there's going to be a recession um, you know, globally you know, in the next you know, period. We could already be in one. Um, so that, that'll really help Australia now. Um, so to me, what a, what a fantastic system. Now, there's, there's um, arguments, oh, look, it's, you know, it favours the old people, you know, they get this, these free kicks, what about us, the young people, we don't. Hey, anyone who's got money in superannuation benefits from, you know, the dividend imputation system, you know, as, you know, they've got you know, investments. You know, anyone who uh, is employed by an Australian company, like, in theory, it's, it's just, like, it, it's, Invest in Australia and support Australia. That's what dividend imputation does. And the reason you know, we were very um, we we're very active uh, in 2018, 2019, because then Labor that was in opposition and they were expected to win that election quite easily, they came out with a policy which was just so unfair, where you could have four people that were the same age and had the same amount of money, and depending on if they had the money in their self-managed super fund, they lose the franking. If they had their money in an industry fund, they get the franking. If one of them went on the pension before the 28th of March 2018, they got the franking. If you were born a week later and went on the pension a week later, you lost the franking. It was just, it was just such an illogical system. I, I agree with what you know philosophically people are talking about. You, you don't want yeah, you know, people shouldn't be rotting the system. You know, let's have a progressive you know, uh, tax system where that, that treats everyone fairly, like our income tax system. Now, we, um, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about you know, people that have got $100 million in super and another person's got $400 million in super. Now, if they're getting a disproportionate benefit, I think Dick Smith said after the last election, he got a half million dollar franking credit refund. Like they shouldn't get that. <laughs> now I, I agree with that logic, but do it logically and fairly and, and don't destroy. It's sort of like the goose that's been laying the golden egg for Australia. Now, why haven't we had a recession for the last 30 years? And part of it is to do with di- dividend imputation, those fully frank dividends. Now what's happened at the moment, like a month before the budget, the government came out and said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to stop, and this was a Treasury uh, proposition, and, and to me the disappointing part is the, you know, the government, when they were in opposition, um, they said you know, both you know, Chalmers and Albanese said that they're not going to bring franking, you know, they're not going to change the franking system or dividend imputation system. 
Now they're in office for a short period of time and they're starting to change it. Now, so it is a broken promise, which is disappointing. Yeah, the um, to me, if you wanted to change it, just don't promise you're not going to change it <laughs> and get elected on that. Um, because I think that's one of the reasons they didn't get elected in 2019. Now, what what the proposal is, is, is that if a company pays a, a fully frank dividend and either before they pay a fully frank dividend or after they pay a fully frank dividend, they raise any capital. And if, that, if, if a dollar of that capital can be associated with that fully frank dividend, and it could be like a, a $3 billion fully frank dividend, if a dollar of capital is associated with that, then that frank, that dividend is not franked. So what it means, uh, and then, then there was something in the budget, and that like the one in the budget doesn't worry me as much, but what, what both of them doing are weakening the system potentially, and what that first one means is if you're a company, and I talked about that company example before that made $100 million, and you only paid out $35 million and kept the other $35 million and invested in your business, you know, maybe expanded, made a takeover, and that you can never pay that other $35 million out without going borrowing money. You can't raise capital and pay that out. So what, what effectively it does, it, it traps half the franking. And there's, there's $430 billion that's already been trapped. Um, and it looks like about $30 billion a year will be trapped. And what concerns me more is this system is great for Australia. Australians investing in Australia, employing Australians, paying tax in Australia, is this agenda has not been run by the Labor government. It's been run by the Treasury Department, which doesn't want to, doesn't want to pay a cent out. And Paul Keating has warned us for years, beware of Treasury. He says every seven years they come after franking. Um, it's only taken them three and a half years to come after it this time. And what happens is, you know, I talked very early on about the UK system. The UK system got abandoned in 1999. And why is because they took parts of it off and then eventually they say, oh, look, it's not working properly. So to me, what worries me is it's a great system. Keep it in place. Don't change it. Don't take parts off. Because what could happen now if they legislate this and with a bit of luck it'll be blocked in the Senate and we'll work as hard as we can to make sure it is blocked in the Senate is you'll have a situation in a year or two's time, Labor will say, uh, well, actually, it only gives half the benefit it really did before and it really doesn't work as it did before. Hey, look, let's get rid of it. Uh, and to me, it's sort of that slippery slope and, you know, to me, we just don't want to go in that direction. But that's why I'm sort of very passionate about it. In terms of inequality, in terms of repairing the budget, I understand that has to happen. Yeah. You know, in terms of inequality, people getting you know, big you know, returns, they shouldn't get them. You know, so bring in a system that's fair and equitable. Uh, like mm. if, if Labor had proposed a fair and equitable system you know, back in 2018, yeah, then, you know, then, then yeah, we... They would, they, they would have been in, in power in 2019, wouldn't they? Hmm. The problem is, it's, you know, back then it wasn't fair and equitable. And what they're doing now is they're, to me, they're potentially dismantling the franking system, which works so well for Australia. So, Jeff, in your opinion, you said progressive uh, earlier in that answer. What, what, what do you mean? Like, how would that take shape? What would that look like? Well, well effectively... And, and, and again, it's piecemeal. Like, like, effectively, you've got to take a step back and say, look, what are we trying to achieve? You know, do we want a system, you know, I mean, effectively, which Paul Keating and uh, Bob Hawke came up with, do we want a system that removes double taxation and encourages Australian companies to invest in Australia, uh, you know, employ Australians, et cetera, et cetera? And, and then, okay, that's where the dividend imputation system turned up. You know, so to me, it's more... In terms of me saying, oh, look, you should cap this at this or you should do – like, to me, it, it, it's all piecemeal. You really need, um, you know, to take a step back and say, look, okay, we've got to repair um, the budget. Um, so, you know, and various things aren't, aren't sustainable. So how are we going to restructure things that, that are fair and equitable, um, you know, to everyone by just coming out and saying, oh, look, it, it is so 
it's like if I had hair, I'd be pulling my hair out. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is so frustrating. You know, with with you know what the government, the Labor government's come out with. Back during the start of COVID, APRA, that regulates the banks, came out and said to the banks, you can't pay a dividend because, you know, when we're all worried about things. And then they mm. came out and said, you can pay a dividend. But they said, you can only pay a dividend if you raise capital. Hmm. So, like, Westpac you know, paid a $2.8 billion dividend and raised $2.5 billion at the same time so if if it was if that legislation gone gone in came in, then that would have been unfranked, and effectively what APRA is telling the banking system to do mm. <laughs> was yeah you know, raise capital to pay your dividends, but any if you raise a dollar of capital to pay a dividend, that's not franked. Like it, to me, it's just so illogical, mm. but, uh, which, which frustrates me as you can see. <laughs> do you do you think there's a better way? To manage then the the capital raising um, issue, like do you? Oh, to me, they just they just shouldn't they just should leave that alone. Yeah, you know, to okay. me, it's uh, the 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 the, um, the issue in the budget. You know, the buybacks hmm. again. That's I mean, that's that's not a to me. It's just chipping away at the system. It's not a it's it's not a real breaker of the system. To me, what they're doing is. Effectively, what they're saying is the only way you can pay out a well, they're, they're saying you, you as an Australian company, you earn $100 million, you pay $30 million tax, don't invest in Australia, don't invest in the business, pay that $70 million just to your shareholders because we're not going to let you raise any, raise any capital associated with paying out any of that dividend. Or, you know, um, you know then, or pay out. Yeah, thirty-five million as a fully frank dividend. The other thirty-five million invest in Australia, invest in the business, but you're never going to be able to pay that out unless you borrow money. And companies like companies, they run. You know, you're trying to maximise the return for the investors. You know, so you won't want to all all of a sudden gear up just to pay dividends. You know, then boards won't won't do that. So mm. the, that those, you know, that, that unfortunately that franking will be lost forever. I'm just going to throw some things out, Jeff, and just you respond yeah. as you will. Right. What, what would you say? So, from an investment perspective, some investors look at they compare our market to the United States, where you have these wonderful technology companies, and we have wonderful technology companies too. But they're obviously, you know, mega companies, right? Global names. What would you say to the the, the argument that? by overly encouraging our companies to pay dividends, that that has an impact on innovation? Oh, to me, that's a pretty long bow because okay. you, you, you think of, you know, you cast your mind back to um, innovation in Australia and, and the pools of capital that would support innovation in Australia. You know, like a decade ago, there was virtually no capital. Mm. Uh, and, and now, the, like, the sector is... is, is you know, as, you know, there's billions of dollars of capital, you know, to support Australian innovation. And, and to me, it's sort of, it's, it's more that leadership you know, thing where you see Australians perform you know, domestically and globally, like, you know, the likes of Alassian and companies like that. You know, then people realise, you know, that there's some, you know, there are smarts here and will invest in it. To me, whether it's, you know, frank dividends or not, you know, to me, that hasn't, to me, that, that, that hasn't, um, I don't think it's much of an impact. But keep, keep hitting, hitting me with the questions. Yeah, I. Um, it's interesting. A lot of the stats that you had before. I, I spoke to uh, Fidelity. I think it was Paul Taylor, and exceptional fund manager, gone for a long time. And he said one of the three reasons that the Australian stock market has outperformed basically every stock market in the world is because of our ability to pay dividends, mm. and um, that stable democracy with dividends being paid is actually a pillar of the stock market's return. And I, in preparation for this chat, mm. Jeff, I, I pulled up the 10-year return. So just 10 years, just a decade. It's not that long in the scheme of things. And I looked at the returns of the ASX 200 just in terms of the share price and capital gains, up 5.1% per annum. Dividends, so total return, 9.5%. Mm. And if, if you adjusted for franking credits in a super fund, 
at 10.15. So about 60 mm. basis points per annum, to me, probably isn't as big as I thought it would be, to be honest. It kind of just goes to show the dividends still powerful, the most powerful component. Yeah, that's right. And 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 that's right. And and like the dividends that that they're not a hundred percent franked. Yeah, because some companies do pay yep. franked dividends. But the and I remember years ago when there was a good debate about franking and we all put our submissions into Treasury um or into the government and Fidelity put a, a very good submission in it as well. And they were basically saying and um I think we might have used um you know some of the uh, research they had used, um, which showed that you know, really companies that pay out you know, high dividend payers um, over time do better. And, yeah. and, that, and the logic behind there is if you, if you leave, if you've got exceptional management and you leave excess capital for that exceptional management, then they perform well. The problem is, you know, not all management is exceptional. And the, if you leave excess capital in with management, sometimes that excess capital gets squandered. Now doesn't get invested that wisely. So, and, and I think a lot of studies have shown that companies with higher pay-at ratios uh, over time you know, outperform companies with lower pay-at ratios, which is interesting. And, and obviously, there's all... You know, I'm, while I'm saying that, I'm thinking, well, hold it. You know, when, when you've got a tech boom, hmm. <laughs> companies don't pay at anything, so that, they would be significantly outperforming. It depends... It's probably you know, when, when you took the data, but but broadly mm. industrial companies like the boring industrial companies, you know, to me, it's you're better off giving the money to shareholders and let the shareholder decide how he wants to allocate the capital. Mm. How about, about sorry, you go. Then there's the Buffett argument. Well, hey, you shouldn't pay anything out. Just if you're good, just keep reinvesting in the business. And I suppose that's the that's the thing. If the companies are exceptional, then don't pay it out. Keep reinvesting in the business. But to me, to get exceptional returns on equity, yeah, it's it's there's not it's not every company, yeah. So unfortunately, there's only a small number that can do that. The, I think one of the issues with the the franking credits debate is that it's quite complicated from a policy perspective. Like a, a lot of people simply don't get it. They s- simply think money is seems to be going to investors that could use be used to pay for insert climate change hospitals. Yeah. You know, that I feel like that's my personal opinion. I'll try and keep that out of it. It's, it's too simplistic. But yeah. how do you think about that? Like, we could repair the budget mm. from franking credits. Yeah, the, the, the I mean, that, that's 100% right. And that's what Labor tried in 2018, 2019. Uh, but it actually failed because that's what they broadly said. They said, you know, the bizarre thing is they said, look, it's good to have a diversified portfolio. Yeah, invest globally. Don't you? Like, I mean, <laughs> Don't invest in Australia. You know, we're going to get rid of the franking. Oh, you're a self-managed super fund. We're going to force you to invest globally because we're going to take the franking away from you in Australia, mm-hmm. unless you're on a pension. Um, so to me, yeah, it, it, it is. It is like to me the the you know, the, the say some of the comments mm-hmm. are a bit crazy. How about then, Jeff? Where and you kind of touched on this before. Another. I guess point or perspective is that franking credits, and you mentioned inequality earlier on. Franking credits tend to accrue to wealthy investors. Uh, well, it, it's more it's more the the wealthy investor, and this is where to me this part of the system. You know, mm. Don't stop the company from paying a fully frank dividend, because I know the logic is it accrues to the wealthy investor. It it actually accrues a significant amount of it accrues to the mum and dad investors that have sort of worked all their life, you know, had enough, put enough money in their, say, their self-managed super farm, ha- haven't gone to the government for a pension and trying to work through their life. It's, and it's, the, it's actually the people that are paying less than a 30% tax. You know, it's, it's the low-income earners because they get the money back. If you're on a 48% tax rate and you get a fully frank dividend, you got to top up. You got to pay another eighteen percent. So it's not a. You know, I don't. I personally don't like fully frank dividends. <laughs> Me getting any myself because I got just got to pay more tax. Um, so to me, it's it's really those people that are getting the you know the um, you know that have the big super funds that are getting those you know like Dick Smith you know getting those franking credit uh, refunds and that's that's the bit that has to be 
You know, that's the bit of the puzzle that has to be solved. How you solve that is you don't take it away from everyone. Hmm. So there's like when back in 18 and 19, you know, like some of the stories that um, that were sent into us, like they would make you cry you know, in terms of people, you know, that have worked all their life, done the right thing. You know, you know, I, I remember this gentleman in Canberra, he was a, yeah, you know, he he was a senior trade union person. Um, you know, was you know, retired, then um, drove trucks for a while. Then yeah, you know, had, had a back problem. Was on a disability pension. Did never went on the never went on the government pension. Saved up enough to have it in self managed super fund. Yeah, you know, was living broadly was living on the, yeah, you know, I think on whatever it was thirty grand a year or yeah, you know, was combination of dividends and fully and franking, and then the government. Bang, uh, was going to be his dividend. Sorry, his income was going to be chopped by 35 percent. So to me, it's 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 sort of trying to find a way that um, you know, that that is you know that doesn't destabilize everyone. Mm. Yeah, you know, that um, you know work on the as I was saying before, progressive. Yeah, you know, like focus on you know, the people that have you know that are, that are, that are, that are getting too much. Yeah, you know, like the tax system. Yeah, you know, mm. like why can't why can't there be a progressive situation where you know, if you're getting a small amount of franken credits back and you're on a low income, yeah, you know, then you get the full benefit. But but don't stop the companies from paying it. Like unfortunately, back in 2019, there was they tried to stop the individuals from getting the franking, and now Labor's trying to stop the companies from paying the franking. Mm. So to me. They're they're tr- they're trying to think they're smart, <laughs> but unfortunately, like it's it's playing around with a system that has worked very well. You know, just take out those unfair excesses where you know the people that you know shouldn't be getting the you know big returns, you know, take them out. That's mm. I think what they've got to do. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to step step us through that, Jeff, because there are so many perspectives. We only just covered a few of them. But mm. um, I know how valuable it is, not just, you know, to investors, but even people in retail super funds and the like, mm. you know, basically everyone in Australia would receive, every working person in Australia would receive a franking credit in one form or another. Um, yeah. So well, it is... If you've got a, if you've got a, you know, if you're a 19-year-old and you started working, then you benefit from the franking system. Mm. Yeah, because you're getting, you know, you've got money in super, but also in terms of your employer or your employee. Um, mm. One of our one of our, our most popular web pages of all time, Jeff, is Franking Credits Calculator. It's just trying to help people figure out what they what they get. And our, our video on Franking Credits is also the second most popular of all time, despite all of these conversations that I have. They're, those are the most popular. Um I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. You've done a few write-ups. Uh, you had an opinion piece in the AFR, so I'll put a link to that as well to the Wilson site and all the funds there. If you are looking, if you are listening to this or watching this and you you want to learn more about how uh, Jeff and his team invest, I think go to those those monthly reports, um, mm-hmm. get the commentary. I'll put the links in the show notes, mate. But I've got one final question, and this is off the, I find this is a very difficult one. So, uh, but I also think that it brings up some great responses. So it's just, it's what, what's something that you believe about life, business, investing, what have you, whatever, that few people would agree with you on? Mm, uh, uh, Good question as always, Owen. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think it's, it's probably anything is possible. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, look, they agree with what I'm saying, but mm. I don't think they are. Like uh, my father probably instilled it, I think, in us, uh, you know, as, as children that really, you know, you know, anything you want to do is possible. Uh, to me, if if everyone sort of believed that was the case, um, then they'd be, they'd be doing what they're passionate about. And I think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, probably unfortunately aren't doing what they're passionate about. Um, mm. So yeah, to me it's yeah that's it. Yeah, like it's it's yeah mm. any, anything is possible. Um, mm. 
I, 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 I think, yeah, that's people would agree with you in principle, but then think great response, Jeff. And, and I, again, I just want to say thanks. I know you're down in, in Tassie um, for the, the Sone conference and I just yeah appreciate you taking the time to, to join me on the show. Yeah, and, and Owen, it, it, you know, if, if you think anything is possible, then it is. <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Jeff. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.